Hey everyone, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and check out the No Cartridge t-shirt. We finally have merch, and I would love to uh, see as many people as possible wearing these. It's for sale over at cottonbureau.com, C-O-T-T-O-N-B-U-R-E-A-U.com, slash products, slash no, dash X, dash C-R. You can also look up Cotton Bureau No Cartridge on Google, and you'll find it. Um, it's available if you're listening to this on the 28th for nine more days. Uh, the sale ends on the 7th and we will make what we sell, but I would love to see some more sold and I would love to see, uh, some more people wearing this shirt. Uh, the rest, you know, patreon.com slash no cartridge, twitch.tv slash no cartridge, and please enjoy the show. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbon on Twitter, and I have with me today uh, my friend Ben, who I've been friends with on Twitter for, I think, quite some time. Uh, Benicus Rex is your at, which uh, makes less sense as an actual name, so it makes sense to know that you're Ben uh, in real life as well. And uh, we're set to have kind of an, uh, an uh, academic conversation here, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Um, actually, the the at, my... Uh, uh, best friend in high school um he used to call me benicus rex of course i think it was supposed to be a a, a mild pun off of oedipus rex okay which i had not read at the time um yeah but it's, I it's odd using... that you were friends with a high school student who read oedipus rex i don't know if he honestly i don't know if he had read it either and in fact i think even to this day my guess is he probably hasn't but I'm assuming uh, you have by this point. I yes, uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of times. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those plays. Um, I'm sure this will come up in the podcast, but I'm a uh, theater historian, a, a theater professor, and it's Oedipus is one of those plays that you just teach all the time. I mean, it's it's. It's up there, like that one and A Doll's House, I think are the two plays that I have read more oh, yeah. times than I care to. I um, I don't teach theater, but I have taught um, in insofar as I teach literature and uh, and composition and stuff. And I do literature. I, I'm at a small institution and um, they don't have a big literature department, so I'm always happy to take what I can get. Um, and they've had me teach intro to theater more than once, and I've taught it before at my uh, where I got my PhD at UIC. So in all of those times I've taught it, I've taught both Oedipus Rex and a, a Doll's House. So yes, I, I I can only imagine what it's like when you are actually just doing it for a living. Yeah, I mean, you understand the pain. I mean, it's. I mean, Absolutely. the thing is, they're both really fantastic plays, historically important, really well written, um, and. Students usually haven't read them, and they should. Um, 
which means that I then have to read them again. So it's, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, you're basically, today you're coming on the show to talk to us about what I would consider to be the Oedipus Rex of video. No, I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> um, but but I would say a very com- uh, very controversial video game in some ways, um, Bioshock Infinite. Uh, tell us a little bit how you, how you came to Bioshock, because I definitely... Um, I'm one of those people who played the the original um, with with a buddy, um, and and kind of you know got into it from there. I enjoyed what it was doing, um, and then really didn't go into many of the sequels or anything like that. Uh, not because I didn't want to, but because I just wasn't really gaming at that point. And the most I'm aware of Bioshock Infinite, I do have the game, and uh, someone asked me to play it at one point. I think I bought it on sale for like three dollars, but. Um, and I will play it at some point. Uh, but I think the most I what I always think about with the game is um, uh, the it's a shame Roger Ebert died right when uh, real right when the first game as art came out in Bioshock Infinite tweet <laughs> by uh, oh who did that um, I think it was Cliffy B Cliff Blazinski. So what brought you to Bioshock Infinite? Okay, uh, great great question. Um, I mean, I will start by saying you really need to play. Bioshock Infinite. It's fantastic. Um, I mean, certainly uh, controversial, difficult, um, and I know this term is overused, but of course, I think problematic, I think in the in the sense that it raises a number of questions and issues and problems that need to be interrogated and resolved. Um, but it, just as far as um, a game i mean it's really a masterpiece and it's definitely worth your time so okay um all right i'll, I'll get right on it i'd recommend then. it definitely and um i guess this is maybe a good time to ask do you did, did i mean uh i probably should have asked this before we started <laughs> but in order for me to really talk about my uh thesis about bioshock infinite we're gonna have to get into some uh spoilers oh is that fine. like I've long, I've long given up my, uh, I've long given up my right to care about uh, being spoiled on things uh, with this podcast. So yeah, no, absolutely go for it. Okay, great. Well, then I just, I'm apologizing in advance if I, you know, uh, which I will spoil the game for you. I assumed you had (laughs) played it, but that's, it's. No, um, most people do. And I, I, it felt like I used to try and play these games like before I talked about them. And then I realized like. I'm like rushing through games and getting like 20% of the way through right before I talk to people. And that's not any better. So I just kind of like coming into it with a, uh, with a totally open, um, totally open mind, basically, I guess. Well, I mean, I think that's a frustrating thing just about um, for anyone who's interested in video games generally is that they're so long. They just take forever to play. Yes. I mean, even a game like Bioshock infinite, which is like, a class of game that they don't really make anymore a triple a linear first person shooter that takes about 12 to 13 hours to play even that is still a really long time yeah that's a serious novel like, yeah time-wise. i mean that, it, right it's it's a major time investment and that and that doesn't even compare to the kinds of games that are immensely popular now which are designed not just to take a hundred hours but in theory a game you're never supposed to stop playing right yes i mean actually my my the the game i gave game of the year to this year um not because like it was far and away the best but because it was probably the best at a very good crop was um 
was Dead Cells. And Dead Cells is a game where, theoretically speaking, um, there's an ending to it. But if you really want to do everything in it, uh, you'd be playing for quite some time <laughs> uh, to the point where it essentially is endless. Um, I, I also think of, I started playing um, Earth Defense Force 4.1, which is another kind of game they don't really make anymore, which is just a goofy, arcade triple AAA game that they remastered. And someone online was figuring out how much you could actually uh, do in it. And they were saying like, oh, you know, actually, if you want to mass, if you want to get full 100% on this, there are, uh, you know, 135 levels and uh, you can play as uh, four different classes in five different difficulties. So doing the math, there are uh, 2,570 missions to finish if you want to do this on 100%. It's just like, oh, my God, like, what, what are we what are we doing here? This is unbelievable. Um, well, I think I can't remember who I was reading that was talking about this, but I was reading some article that was talking about that, um, how we have a lot of contemporary games are these games of service, massive open world games that you're supposed to theoretically never stop playing. But old school games, these like arcade style games were also meant to be games you continued to play over and over again as you attempted to, um, achieve a high score or something Mm -hmm. along those lines so that uh, the the notion of sort of infinite replayability is um not uh super new it's just sort of shifted in how we imagine that playing out that's really interesting i mean there's like a there's a there's also this anxiety of um of value that i think was missing when games were were so new and also when owning a game um was much more of a novelty than it is now you would more so play it in the in the arcade actually owning it was was kind of strange and even to the point where you know the console games were not nearly the same experience as the arcade uh, the arcade would always be a little better graphically uh, obviously we're at a point now where that is no longer the case um so people just own you know these amazing uh, graphical pieces on their home computer home systems um but now there's like all this question about like well is it buying this how many how many um how many hours of gameplay do I get out of this? And is it worth it based on all the uh, hours I'm going to get or not get? And I think that also builds into that anxiety where it's like, well, if I didn't, if I, if I don't get a hundred hours out of the $70 I'm paying, then it's a waste of time, which, you know, I think in some ways it's like, if I get a hundred hours out of this, it might also be a waste of time. <laughs> right. I have, um, I suffered all the way through mass effect Andromeda oh. and, um, <laughs> goodness. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I did everything. It took me about 60 hours. And after doing it, I was like, okay, I don't know why I just did that. I think that was a waste of my time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've been trying to, I've been trying to get off the completionist, uh, the completionist, uh, uh, what, what would I call it? Treadmill. Um, it hasn't really been working. Um, but I've been doing my best just to say like, okay, if I don't experience everything in a game, that's all right. Um, Turns out, not the easiest thing to put into practice. Um, but, but yes, yeah. so I will play Bioshock Infinite since it is apparently that short. That is uh, that is compelling to me. Uh, I like short games. Um, you you wrote about Bioshock Infinite in a way that I, I I enjoyed because there is a there is kind of an acknowledgement that it is a game you like, but you also deal with as you say like this problematic element of it, which a lot of people talk about, which is basically, you know, you're given these choices to make. Uh, and particularly this comes up in Bioshock one where it can easily be read as like an anti libertarian game. 
Um, and I think, you know, there, there's a there's a reading there that's fairly compelling, but um, it also basically just asks you to be kind of like a liberal subject. There's nothing radical about it necessarily, um, nor is there anything like, you know, super emancipatory or new about it. It's just kind of, it, it is what it is. Um, Bioshock Infinite kind of takes this to another level since it's explicitly political um, in, in the place where you are, Columbia, of course. Um, and you kind of write about how it's not like to reject it as just like, Oh, liberalism again, as like, I think a lot of the left would on Twitter um, and, and maybe even in the gaming press uh, you kind of take it in a much more nuanced way. So I was wondering if you could explain just like the premise of your understanding of Bioshock infinite and how it deals with, uh, let me put it this way, how it deals with world building. Okay. Um, so, um, there are essentially, I think, two um, important um, theoretical approaches that I'm taking to the game. Uh, one of them is the work of Althusser. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I actually wrote my dissertation deals pretty significantly with um, with Althusser. Um, so basically, uh, in a nutshell, kind of classical, sort of classical Marxist formulation about ideology is that ideology is philosophies that um, attempt to discuss the world or that describe the world in conceptual uh, terms so that we think of the world in um, metaphysical ways we think of the world in um, conceptual or abstract ways. Right. And Marx was concerned with that kind of philosophy, which he called ideology, um, because it ignored the real material base. So that Marx kind of imagined himself to be a type of scientist who was investigating uh, material concerns. Right. And I mean, Marx's, Marx's understanding of ideology is, I mean, I think complicated by the fact that he's like, he's responding to people like the young Hegelians who, you know, he, Marx himself is a Hegelian, uh, you know, um, uh, I suppose like a protesting Hegelian in some ways, but a, a Hegelian and, uh, you know, in some ways uses, ide- uh, well, this is sort of my pet project, but uses idealism in his own work, but not in the way that, uh, you know, even Hegel would, where he's sort of using it to describe a material state, right? Like Marx, I always say, takes issue with Hegel's understanding of like a perfect state as 1848 Prussia and a perfect like society as the church, but without God. Like, I think for Marx, all of that is very, um, it's insufficient at at best, let's say. Right. Um, And so, and so Marx, uh, I think, again, unlike Hegel, while there are similarities, of course, um, unlike Hegel, is purely interested in um, uh, material. How can we objectively describe the world? Sure. And of course, then for Marx, that objective description of the world is um, uh, material forces, um, class struggle as the primary mover of history. Yeah. Um, as you get into 20th century um, Marxism, um, you get a number of thinkers uh, attempting to explain, <laughs> I mean, why didn't this revolution happen, right? Sure, you yeah. get revolutions in um, 
Russia, you get you know failed revolutions and uh, Germany. But um, why didn't this happen? Why didn't it? Um, yeah, why don't why don't why don't we have communism this, right now? Right, right. Why don't we have the the inevitable worldwide communism as predicted by Marx? And um, so that twentieth century Marxist thinkers began to be interested in um, culture. Yeah. Okay. That there seems to be something about culture uh, that is preventing the revolution. And so for 20th century thinkers, and I think particularly Althusser, who's really an outlier in Marxist thinking. In fact, a lot of Marxists take umbrage with Althusser. Yes. Um, He, uh, for him, ideology is not just some abstract concept uh, that is in opposition to the material world. Ideology is rather um, um, a sort of, to put this in sort of Star Wars terms, right? It surrounds us, it binds us, it penetrates us. Yeah. Uh, You know, ideology is how we um, view the world, uh, how we imagine the world to be. Um, ideology is the entire system of representations to which we belong, even, and it even encompasses this thing that we call identity Mm -hmm. so that we, um, imagine ourselves to have a certain, um, identity or set of beliefs that belong to us inherently, but that Althusser would say are, uh, ideological. And what he means by that is that, um, in imagining ourselves to be coherent um, subjects who pre-exist a social order, we then reproduce that social order um, because what the social order of capitalism relies on is the false or imagined notion of um, a free acceptance of capitalism. So that capitalism purports that individuals, you know, quote, choose capitalism because it's the best of all sort of possible alternatives. Um, And so the way in which this ideology works on individuals is through what Althusser calls these um, rituals of ideological recognition. Right. Um, and rituals of ideological recognition can be as simple as what he calls the hail. So the famous example he gives is you're walking down the street and a policeman says, hey, you, and you turn around um, to to uh, say, oh, me, am I the person you're referring to? Thus acknowledging that you are, in fact, a subject who is addressed by uh, authority. Right. Yeah, that's the what, right. what, he, what yeah, he calls interpolation. Right. And that's and that's what it means to be uh, interpolated, to be brought into this system, to imagine yourself as um, an individual. Um, But other examples of rituals of ideological recognition um, are, well, uh, this thing that we call entertainment, right? Uh, Cinema, as it tends to work, theater um, and also, uh, although Althusser, of course, didn't mention video games explicitly we can say that video games are also a ritual of ideological kind of a weird miss by him 
just, just yeah, it's real. It's a shame that he did not talk about it. Uh, I think um, he, sh- he definitely should have. Uh, it's one of the big critiques that scholars have about Fuzaire. <laughs> Why didn't you talk about video games? Um, yeah, no, it's it. I mean, what's what's interesting about Althusser though, and and I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to to critique it, but I think you're right in saying he's an outlier. But of course, there's like there's so much post-Marxist thought that is. Um, that is close to him that he gets taught where like, um, you know, talking about how culture works the way you have, that's, that's very much like thinking about how the situationists think about culture or, you know, it, it's not incredibly far off from, um, from uh, culture industry. Although Adorno is, is much more concerned about the subject and much less concerned about art. Um, I mean, there's like, there's, there's a number of, of ties to contemporary Marxism in here. It's just, he is so, he is kind of like this weird, He's this weird version wherein he's saying that the subject can't be the subject under can't be like an individual subject as we understand it under capitalism, which um, is very similar to Debord. But then he's also not doing the Debordian situationist thing of saying like, so let's walk around and solve the problem. There's not really a solution in Althusser. It's just a series of like observations almost. Um, or at least that's how I've understood it when I've read him and, and studied him. It's it's not that he's like lazy that way, but more like uh, um, accepting of the power of um, of state capital. Yeah, I mean that's um, that is certainly one of the critiques of Althusser that it seems like, and it was something I had to struggle with in writing my dissertation because um, if if. <sighs> You know, he talks about how you can't critique ideology from outside of ideology. The beginning of ideological critique is a recognition that you can't find an empty corner of the forest, right. that you're always already embedded within ideology. And that can seem, of course, if you are uh, an activist, uh, Althusser might not be super useful um, because what kind of real solutions is he maybe providing? Um, another critique is that... He critiques um, what many sort of at least uh, classical Marxist thinkers saw as important liberal humanistic um, uh, elements of Marxism. So the sense that uh, under capitalism, our we are alienated from, you know, our the from our uh, the products that we create and. We want to be um, trying to think how to phrase this. Um, The sort of liberal humanist impulse to see us all as free individuals is an important part of sort of classical Marxist thinking. Yeah. We want to be free individuals. We want to be. Uh, we want to be free from the power of the corporation, free from the power of our boss, free from the sort of coercive and repressive power of the state. And so Althusser seems to be critiquing some of the liberal humanist um, thinking that motivated early Marx, who was in many ways uh, a liberal humanist. Sure. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and, you know, they, they, I think what's, what's fascinating most about Althusser in that way is – the way he sort of operates as a, a corrective and a critique of Marx, where like I, I think a lot about the the phrase he uses in Reading Capital, where he talks, where he says, um, 
you know, what to understand Marx, <clears throat> you have to understand the question he's asking and to understand the question he's asking, you basically look at Adam Smith and uh, when Adam Smith says like um, labor is the free or uh, the, the mark, you know, a, a labor freely sells his uh, a labor freely sells his um, uh, power uh, or, or like a labor freely sells his labor, I guess is, is the something like this. I'm, I'm butchering it, um, obviously. But uh, he um, he basically says like Marx does the extra thing and fills in the saporia that Smith has, which is OK, like what you can't sell your labor you can only sell your labor power um and so therein diagnoses the market um and then althusser asks okay so what's marx's aporia and that question is so interesting because of course like in a in a world where we um uh so sort of deify marx uh you know i i don't i don't mean to yell at people for doing that i certainly am guilty myself but um i i think althusser is very very happy to to um to question the the legitimacy of Marx's analysis. He's totally fine with it. Um, and that is, I mean, you know, love him or hate him, that is a valuable thing to do. Right. And I think um, there was a great deal of uh, sort of anti-Althusser writing in, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. But it seems like Althusser is returning to the forefront of um, – discussions mm-hmm. um yeah i mean I, I about i went to school i don't know how old you are compared to me or you're pro- we're probably similarly aged probably about the yeah. same age but i know in my undergrad althusser was read i mean isas were a huge deal we always covered them um you know not the harder stuff but uh when i got to graduate school and was doing work with adorno and and aesthetics and stuff i mean althusser althusser played a role in my thesis a fairly significant role in the uh in the um, chapter on um, Blood Meridian to the point that I had to change it because um, <laughs> my thesis advisor was like, this is a really interesting uh, reading of um, Adorno and Althusser uh, that you've done here. I really enjoy reading it. I am the only person who's going to enjoy reading it. So change this. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think, I think he's important. I think like people want to grapple with him now. Um, whereas before, I, I don't know if that was necessarily true. Yeah, I think I think sort of before neoliberalism really um, got its stranglehold on um, United States politics, um, Althusser was seen as in some ways um, a sort of a traitor to kind of leftist causes, Mm -hmm. because if everything's ideology. If we're always already embedded in ideology, even people who who think of themselves as free from it, um, that can be um, uh, sort of paralyzing or demoralizing to uh, leftist critiques of the world. Yeah. Well, and I think oh, and go ahead, sorry. oh, no, what I was going to say, and then so neoliberalism uh, comes along, and something that was assumed in many ways dead, right? Liberalism then comes back and gains the stranglehold, not just on American politics, but on the global economy in a way that it really hasn't previously. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, when um, Francis Fukuyama talks about the end of history, um, and of course, Fukuyama's no Marxist, right? He's a liberal apologist. Yeah, although he'll, he'll tell you he's a Marxist as often as he can, or at least a Hegelian. He's a 
terrible Hegelian. Yeah. But, um, I mean, he's in many ways, uh, I don't want to necessarily say he was right, because I think that there are alternatives and different ways of imagining the world. But it seemed at least popular, popularly, and at least in um, our political consciousness, there doesn't seem to be any other kind of option. And and why is that? And Althusser, I think, helps answer that. Yeah, question. I would agree. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally think that that makes a ton of sense. Um, so talk to me, I, we're going to get, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more guilty than you are in this. We're going to get caught in the weeds of talking about Althusserian theory. Um, and, uh, I will, uh, people will yell at me forever and say, what are, what are you doing? This is a podcast about video games. And here you are talking about post-Marxism for an hour, um, which is all I actually want to do, but you gotta, you gotta give them, you gotta give them the meat too. You gotta sell the sizzle. Give the people what they want. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so talk to me a little bit about how this all ties in with Bioshock Infinite. Cause I've, I've read your, I've read your article. I know, I know kind of how it does, but, uh, the people who are out there do not. So Bioshock Infinite, a uh, game about politics and choices, which is, uh, not so uncommon in, uh, in, especially in the period that it was written. I mean, this, this was not too far from the fable games and the, the, the idea of games as a kind of like, uh, you know, most, successful when they have a choice mechanic like this is something that was becoming very big uh in the in the time period i would say um why does why does bioshock infinite uh represent a sort of uh i don't know a a space in which to discuss these issues okay uh great question so i think this this actually um gets us to sort of the what i was just saying about althusser and liberalism why sort of althusser is is particularly useful because i think um bioshock infinite emerges under this you know umbrella of this thing that we call uh neoliberalism Mm -hmm. and in the article i just refer to I, i don't really use the term neoliberal that much i just use the term liberalism because i think for what i'm talking about it's a more sort of accurate term you also aren't going to get Mr. Um, Weeks on Twitter yelling at you. Actually, you might get him yelling at you more. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I I look forward to getting yelled at online. Um, so <laughs> so basically, um, you know, liberalism is um, a kind of 18th, 19th century philosophy propound- whose proponents are people like Adam Smith. Thomas Paine, um, and, you know, to some degree, we can even say people like um, Hobbes and Locke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. It's this notion that we are, um, you know, free atomic individuals, the individual is the, and by atomic individuals, the notion that the individual is the atom of society, this basic unit of society, um, and that it's about free markets, free choice, um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And that's often what we call classical liberalism. Um, into the 20th century, uh, especially because of the Great Depression, um, you get uh, a number of uh, uh, thinkers who are interested in perhaps reining in some of capitalism's worst excesses and creating what some people have called a kind of like egalitarian liberalism. Um, so, like New Deal liberalism mm-hmm. is is not, um, I mean, it's not Marxism. No. It's that to preserve the power of the state, um, some resources need to be allocated slightly more efficiently to prevent, uh, you know, revolution and anarchy. 
Yeah, no, um, that, yeah. Seems, that seems well said. I mean, that's certainly the intention of the New Deal coming as it does at the, you know, the twin, the twin, the, the, the skill and charybdis of, uh, of the Great Depression and World War II. Um, right. And then as you get into the late 70s, um, thinkers like uh, Milton Friedman, and then, of course, minor historical figures that you may have heard, may have heard of, like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Weird. I, I No, I'm not familiar. Let's we'll um, talk about it after the show. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they become sort of major figures of this thing that we call neoliberalism, which is to say the resurgence of uh, liberal ideals in the late 70s, early 80s of um, uh, deregulation, global trade, uh, individual freedoms, uh, removing the government as much as possible from the lives of individuals. Right. And so this thing that we call neoliberalism um, is, of course, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar to classical liberalism. And so what I'm critiquing in the paper is not just sort of neoliberalism, but also the entire liberal project, which undergirds, I think, um, uh, U.S. politics. Yeah, that makes sense. I and mean, that is, since at least the Volcker shock, I mean, since or since Bretton Woods, like the 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 idea that you know classical liberalism is the the I guess the philosophical arm uh, as opposed to the economic arm of neoliberalism totally makes sense. Um, what you talk about individualism and, and the idea of the atomic individual, I think you know it would be it would you would be hard pressed to explain American politics better uh, than that. Right. Um, and there's a, a recent book, uh, I think it came out either early this year or maybe last year, it, by Patrick uh, J. Deneen. It's called Why Liberalism Failed. Um, and something he talks about in this book is how if you look at like the ways in which the American political left has been successful mm -hmm. with things like marriage equality, uh, transgender rights, um, and so on. And the ways in which the American political right has been successful with things like um, uh, Second Amendment, um, uh, labor rights, global trade, that kind of thing. So the idea is what he says is, and this is his words, he says that in some ways in a, in, we have what he calls a default setting towards liberalism so that um, the – the left primarily pushes a kind of uh, you know, individual freedom. The right tends to push a kind of economic freedom. And when you actually look at politically how they're successful, the left is pretty successful in the realm of individual freedom, and the right is pretty successful in the realm of economic freedom. Right. So that um, what we get is, again, this default setting he called uh, – what he calls this default setting – towards uh, liberalism, towards individual freedom, uh, as well as uh, economic freedom. Yeah, and it, um, it reminds me a little bit there uh, recently the um, I don't know if you're a baseball person or not, but they uh, the now people have been getting people have been getting mad about this. So Jim Ricketts does not own the Cubs, but um, uh, sort of the the patriarch of the family that does, in fact, own the Cubs um, is uh just like basically his emails got leaked and there was uh, there were a bunch where like he you know he said ridiculous things like 
you know, uh, union, like public, public service, public service, uh, jobs, public service unions, uh, collect my taxes and then, uh, support people that I would never vote for. And in this way, I am a slave, like, like, and people are, people of course are, are super irritated and offended and as well, they should be right. I'm not defending Ricketts, but it is true that this is exactly, this is not like new ideology. The idea that unions take away your freedom to choose not to be in a union is, is absolutely classic, um, classic American, uh, liberalism, neoliberalism. That's the whole point. Um, not that like unions are a net, like uh, always a good thing or always like successful. I don't think any leftist will tell you that a union is always successful, but that, uh, they are a net evil is the neoliberal position because they are anti-individual. Right. Um, and you know, um, these like anti-union videos from like, um, Target and, you know, Walmart have leaked online. And that's essentially the arguments that they make is that they're going to, uh, prevent you from having, uh, freedoms yeah. um, as an individual. Yeah. I, I, I used to, I used to razz my, uh, well, I mean, she was, she's my friend too. We've, you know, one of those sibling friends who's over so much that they become your friend also, but, uh, a friend of mine who was a manager at target target. And I would always razz her because the, uh, they got like a, a series of, um, uh, scripts to, to talk to people about unions. And, uh, the one, the one, <laughs> it, it, it's pretty theoretically funny, which is surprising, but the one that, uh, that always got me was if someone brought up a union, your response was supposed to be, Oh, really? Um, which, which I still respond to her with whenever she texts. But um, uh, I'm going to make that my default response to everything. It's so funny. <laughs> it's oh, really? Um, but I mean, it's it's theoretically interesting too because, of course, like that's the that's the strategy with unions where you're just like, oh, a union? Are you sure? Or I don't know. I don't. I don't. Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and that, that is of course like the whole strategy where you point it out and say like, it seems like a risky decision to do this when you rather do what's more comfortable and rely on yourself. Um, and that, that at, you know, in a nutshell is neoliberalism. I would totally agree. Um, so, so explain this a little, uh, tie this back to, um, I'm going to be, I'm going to be your dissertation advisor now, uh, tie this back to, uh, to Bioshock for me real quick. Okay, yeah. So apologies to uh, to listeners who are like waiting for the video game talk. So this is the video game talk. <laughs> so so um, you have um, the, the big sort of paradox of liberalism, and this gets us into Bioshock Infinite, is that it um, sort of wants to appear on its surface to be a system that is about. Uh, freedom of choice. And yet, the way it maintains its uh, power is through uh, uh, a kind of tacit acknowledgement that there is no other option. Mm. And this is Margaret Thatcher's famous dictum, right? That uh, there is no alternative. Right. And that's going to mean a lot more to me when you explain who she is. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's after the podcast. Yeah, no, we'll, I mean, we we'll, don't want to bore everyone else who I'm sure knows, but I don't. And uh, this is actually similar to the speech that Ronald Reagan gave at the the, the Brandenburg Gate speech, the very famous, yeah. you know, tear down this wall speech, um, where he talks about there's essentially, uh, there's two options. You can either be on the side of, you know, freedom, or you can be on the side of um a tyranny and oppression, 
In other words, it's this choice that's not really a choice, right? That, that liberalism um, is the only real option. Right. Everything else is force, and yet you don't have another choice outside of liberalism. And this gets us into, I think, Bioshock Infinite, because um, what Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite is about, I argue, is that it in many ways stages that paradox. It attempts to place the player in a position where they can ostensibly imagine all kinds of alternatives to the world and yet does so in a way that forces the player uh, through its narrative so that the player imagines him or herself as having sort of freedom of choice, but that the only real choice is liberalism. And let me, let me try and explain that. So um, the, the narrative of the game is that you are Booker DeWitt, who has been sent to the city in the sky called Columbia to rescue a uh, woman named Elizabeth. And you don't know why you've been sent to go rescue her. And you arrive in Columbia and um, soon, of course, because it's a first-person shooter game, things get uh, violent. You are <laughs> recognized by the police as the false, uh, the false shepherd who has come to uh, steal the lamb, who is Elizabeth, away. And you fight your way to rescuing Elizabeth. And as you're doing this, you discover that um, Columbia is this white supremacist society. Okay. It's um, when you first enter the city, it's everything is beautiful and uh, uh, um, nice. One of the one of the characters even describes it as as heaven or as or as near as we'll see till judgment day, and it it appears to be this idyllic. A utopia. What one scholar, uh, Martin T. Buinicki, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, describes as as um, its sort of staging of um, nostalgia, a kind of Norman Rockwell Americana. Okay. Um, and it's revealed by the end of the opening sequence that this order is maintained through uh, white supremacy. Um, and there's this raffle sequence, which I'll, I'll get into in a bit. Um, that's an important sequence, which I'll come back to. Okay. But you discover that, um, you know, this is a white supremacist uh, society and that there is a uh, group of rebels known as the Vox Populi. In the game, <laughs> they just call them the Vox. Uh, run, by a, run by a woman of color. Her name is Daisy Fitzroy. Okay. Um, and she, at one point, makes... Uh, a deal with Booker and says, look, if you bring us the guns we need for this revolution, we will provide you with an airship so that you can leave Colombia. And so he and Elizabeth attempt to do so. And then this is where the game gets um, sort of more science fiction-y than it's been in the past. Mm -hmm. It turns out that Elizabeth can open these tears into other realities, other possibilities. And so when you find out that the weapons cache you're looking for doesn't exist, um, Elizabeth is able to open this tear into another reality where hopefully that weapons cache does exist. Mm. And 
in this other reality, you enter a reality where the Vox Populi have won. They've won their revolution against Comstock. But the, the post-revolutionary world that is run by Daisy Fitzroy is um, it's you know just as bad quote as um, the world run by Comstock. Yeah, it's sort of just as authoritarian, just as violent. And Booker Dewitt comments at one point. Um, I'm going to sort of butcher the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of, um, you know. Fitzroy and Comstock are just another name for the same person, that it's just the same thing. And I'm not the first person to point out that the game does this. Popular criticism of the game and even other academics have noted the way in which it essentially situates white supremacy and um, revolution as kind of two sorts of uh, authoritarianisms. Yeah, that's a pretty rough false false binary <laughs> right right it's um uh it is definitely not the comparison i would have made <laughs> um and so booker he um you continue to go through the game and what uh, happens and this gets us into real spoiler territory so again if someone just, hasn't played it really wants to uh just if you really want to play bioshock infinite and you're really worried about spoilers which I'm this not sure why you're concerned about spoilers for a, a what is it now, 10-year-old game. Um, well, that's true, but you haven't played it. I haven't, so but I'm not worried about spoilers. Yeah. Okay, all right, great. I don't think I, um, I think most games I'd play at this point, I would hope, aren't um aren't really fun because of the plot. Like current games, I'm always kind of interested what how the plot goes so I can figure out, okay, like what do I think about this plot twist? But I mean, there's so many people who have thought about I mean even if it was just you who had thought about Bioshock Infinite, I'd be like, well, they've thought about the plot enough so that I don't really have to. Um, I think, like, I'm interested in the mechanics at that point. Um, okay, well, I just, I know for me, I don't play, I often don't play games right when they come out. I usually wait till they go on sale. That's fair. So, and then I have this big backlog. So I don't often wind up playing games until they're years old anyway. So, so. So I regardless, I don't think I'm explaining my problem, my, my, my lack of care with spoilers well enough. It's just that I don't if I'm playing an old game, I'm playing it because I really want to play that game. It doesn't really so much okay. matter like if I if I'm getting surprised by the plot or whatever, there'll be little things in it that'll be interesting to me um, anyway. Uh, but like big plot reveals, it's fine. You know, that's totally OK. OK, well, uh, good to know, because here we go. <laughs> so it turns out that um, Booker DeWitt and. Uh, Zachary Comstock, who's the the prophet of Columbia, are the same person. Oh boy, they're the same person from uh, different uh, realities. And the the moment in which they sort of split off is um, Booker when he was younger. He was a Pinkerton agent. He participated in the the in putting down the Boxer Rebellion. He participated in the massacre at Wounded Knee. He he had done a lot of things for which. He was um, uh, understandably regretful about, mm-hmm. and he seeks out redemption and decides to get baptized. And in one reality, he accepts the baptism and becomes Comstock. 
And in another reality, he just he decides he's he just refuses the baptism and walks away. And in that reality, he becomes Booker. Uh, Elizabeth, it turns out, is Booker's daughter. Okay. Um, Comstock Slash couldn't Comstock's have daughter. Or? No, actually, Booker's daughter. Oh, interesting. Because and so in the in the game, you think she's Comstock's daughter. Uh huh. But she's actually Booker's daughter from the reality in which Booker didn't accept the baptism. Okay. Um, and he gave her to Comstock because he himself couldn't have kids. Okay. Um, and so uh, it's it's convoluted. But at the end, um, Booker is baptized by Elizabeth. And his, that game ends with him having his head held underwater and he's killed oh interesting. so so he he doesn't he doesn't emerge as either comstock or booker he dies right he, he does he just dies and that's it and there's there's actually a, a small sort of teaser kind of post-credit sequence that doesn't really invalidate my my argument so i'm just gonna ignore it yeah set the, post-credits, post-credit sequences are only there for shock and for selling more games they should not be considered <laughs> unless they're really good in which case consider it um that's the that's the literary critic code. Um, well, because the post credit sequence still maintains this kind of ambiguity that I'm talking about. So basically, the baptism sequence is what my paper uh, is primarily focuses on. Because what I'm talking about is um, how in the game, the way that the game defines baptism is uh, you find this like audio log in the game. It's one of those audio yeah. log heavy games, much like the other bioshock games. well and also much like the other shock games like uh like system right. shock 2 and then yeah i mean and prey as well which um i've had john bernard on to talk about prey and his argument is that it's it's just a shock game like there i think i think for sure that's like that's a tech that's a technology that i still think is great um even even though it's probably a little dated at this point the audio logs yes oh see i'm i actually am log? not a big fan of them oh really okay why don't you like yeah. them well uh, okay. Uh, I, I don't really like them because um, I feel like um, my argument really just comes from like teaching playwriting, right? Okay. And when I teach my students, like don't put anything in that's not relevant to the plot. Like, um, and what worries me about audio logs is that um, if they are, if they're providing relevant information that I need to know, why why not include them in a way that I'm guaranteed to learn them? Like why, like why hide it behind the the cashier's register in some building that I have no other reason to walk into? Right. Other than to hope there's an audio log. That's there. reasonable. I think I guess like I guess and, for me it why I like them is and I, I we're um, I won't sidetrack us too long on this, but one of the reasons I like them is because it encourages the kind of um, explore, explorative exploratory um attitude i always have to in video games in like a a very um in kind of a very natural way where like oh there's like a reason to come to be a completionist than to be weird about like going into every room i might find some more information or exposition about this um but i guess i guess the the trick would be playing a game with audio logs where you find nothing optional and seeing if the story is still um coherent that would be kind of an interesting maybe i'll try that with a game I, i i've never played um, or like a new game or something where I'll just collect nothing optional and see if the story holds together. Well, and I think the Bioshock Infinite actually, it's a smart game. And I think it uses the fact that like 
it understands how people play games. It understands that people, you know, search these little hidden corners of rooms. And, and I think it, it in some ways, um, uh, is metatextual. And I'll talk about that in just a second, but, um, the, um, this one audio log you find, it's called every man all at once. And it says, which is what the title of the paper comes from. Mm-hmm. And it says that it's talking about, it's Comstock talking about baptism. And it basically says that, um, you know, who is, you know, who is the person that emerges from the waters of baptism? When they, when they go down into the waters of baptism, they're every man all at once. Who will they be when they emerge? Um, and you don't know until they actually emerge from the waters of baptism. You know, uh, they're, so while they're under the water, they're sinner and saint at the same okay. time. And it's not until they emerge that we can, you know, understand who this person actually okay. is. So that the way that the internal logic of the game, uh, for the internal logic of the game, baptism, um, at least the 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 symbolism of being underwater is that what Victor Turner calls, uh, who's an anthropologist mm-hmm. who's used a lot of performance studies, a liminal space, uh, a space. Um, sort of between moments of a ritual hmm. that allows for multiple kind of possibilities. And so at the end of the game, you're held underwater in this liminal space where you could um, it theoretically be any kind of person when you emerge. And then the game ends. Booker doesn't emerge from the water. What emerges is the player. Hmm. Sure. Because the game's over. And, and I think because the way that games work is that it, when you watch like a film or a play or something along those lines, you have to, as a spectator, um, imagine what the characters are thinking. You know, and this is especially true in, um, you know, shows that are very subtle, like The Sopranos, which never tells you what its characters are right. thinking. You have to intuit it as an audience member. Um, in a game what the protagonist of the game is thinking and what the um, spectator slash player is thinking is the same thing, which is that when Booker makes decisions in the world of the game, Booker is doing those things for the reason that the reasons that the player is giving to Booker to make those decisions. And so, uh, more so than I think other kinds of rituals of ideological recognition, video games um, uh, emphasize, again, more so than I think even film or theater, video games emphasize identification with the protagonist mm-hmm. and thus confirmation of you as uh, an individual. Mm. And so the person that emerges from the baptism is the player who now is free to, or, you know, free to choose or imagine alternative ways of constructing or thinking about the world. But what the game has told the player is that any kind of extremism is all equal. They're all just equally bad. And so the, uh, alternative is to avoid authoritarianism entirely and instead uh, to choose, quote unquote, liberalism. Okay. Because any other option is presented as um, authoritarian, um, 
dictatorial um, and destructive. Sure. And, you know, in, in doing, in like performing this move, basically, it reminds me a lot, uh, we don't have to talk about this, but it reminds me a lot of the uh, the move that Far Cry 5 does, which is why it was such a disappointing game to me, where it frames itself as, oh, you know, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about these, these racial uh, or these racialists, sort of like white supremacist people um, who do a, um, you know, who, who produce this, this uh, cult in a small town and, and infiltrate the small town. And, and, you know, this is really going to be sort of like a meditation on a moment in America that uh, is, is troubling. And um, instead it was just like, they were like, oh, we'll make them religious. And uh, the whole thing's going to be, don't, don't fall into cults. Um, and, and, you know, you just, you, you meet up with all these people and everyone, everyone knows the score and everyone's good to each other and you go ahead and try and beat the cult. Um, and, and that was less, uh, that was less satisfying. Um, and I think it's for the same, like, it seems to me that this is a similar thing where they're saying, you know, like you have the choice, you know, or not, you have the choice, but like, this is a game about choices. It's a game about like, uh, what choices people make. Uh, and and why they make them and and all of this and really in the end it's just a game that says like try not to make too many choices. Well, well, right. Um, and I think and also along the lines of Far Cry Five, it's also you know um, uh, you know rednecks with guns are bad, and yet the way you solve the problem is by going out by yourself with a gun and like or teaming you know, up with um, rednecks with guns you, you can also do that right <laughs> um guns solve you know guns sort of solve uh our problems it like wants to kind of have its cake and eat it too so. absolutely and i think with bioshock infinite i was talking about how it is um metatextual sort of aware of itself as as a game and there's a lot of moments in the game where you are very clearly forced down a particular path uh one example is um you run into these individuals known as the lutesses who are really they're the same individual from alternate dimensions who have similar powers to elizabeth uh in terms of being able to travel between dimensions and um they were the ones who helped uh you you know kidnap booker's daughter and give her to uh Comstock, they feel bad about it, so they're trying to help Booker get Elizabeth back so that they can rectify all these problems. And you run into them at one point, and um, they've got this, like, and I think this is an allusion to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but they have this, um, uh, like, a chalkboard, you know, that you wear, like, as a signboard, you know, over your head. You know what those are? Like the ones in old, like, Charlie Chaplin movies that someone would wear if they were blind. He says like, yeah, right. Something like that. And, and it's got like heads on one side, tails on one side and a number of, uh, um, tick marks underneath, uh, heads. Okay. And you're handed a coin and told to like flip the coin and you can't, like you can't progress the story until you actually flip the coin. You just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's not like, it's not done as a, uh, as a cutscene, you actually have to press F to flip the coin. <laughs> okay. And so you sort of sit there. I mean, this is the game. Uh, again, I think metatextually discussing the nature of choice in games, because it it's forcing you 
to press this one little button, sort of like the Stanley parable, right? To press this one right. little button um, to proceed. And so you press F, you flip the you flip the coin, and it lands on heads. And then when they walk away, you see on the back of the signboard that, um, and you, if you count up the total number of tallies, it's like 122 times Booker has been to Columbia. Mm. So that there are all these alternate realities in which Booker has come and has failed to rescue Elizabeth. Okay. Um, and so Booker, as a character in the game, is being forced along a predetermined path. His choices are already set. The player who's playing Booker is also being forced along a predetermined path where the choices are already set. And so this sense that after you emerge from baptism, you can now, you know, you're free to sort of choose whatever sort of person you want to be, right? You're, you're every man all at once. You have this freedom to be anyone. Um, that the game simultaneously is about, um, you know, liberal, the system of liberalism, which suggests that um, freedom of choice is the primary um, um, trait that defines us as atomic individuals, mm -hmm. but also stages the paradox of liberalism by forcing you to arrive at that point. Mm, yeah. So what you're saying is basically like the game, the game constructs its own, the game constructs its own closure, which is to say like it presents you with an actual paradox, but it has sort of like, behind the scenes constructed the constraints of that paradox such that you could only really experience it in one way. Right. And I don't, and I don't know if, you know, Ken Levine, you know, did this intentionally, you know, but, but I think that the game uh, wants to, um, you know, intentionally or unintentionally place the player or, um, cause the player to misrecognize themselves as an individual mm. while at the same time um, constraining uh, the player arriving at that moment of recognition. So that, as Slavoj Žižek would say, you can see dictatorship in democracy. And I think perhaps unintentionally. And this gets us back to that raffle sequence, which I said yeah. I would talk about. In this raffle sequence, this happens near the beginning of the game. It's, um, it's sort of the beginning of, the, of where combat starts in the game. You're, you arrive at this raffle sequence and you are told um, by, if I'm remembering, one of the Lutesses who tells you, you know, don't pick number 77. Okay. You arrive at this raffle and you're handed this, you know, woman hands you a uh, a baseball and you look at it and it's number 77. <laughs> and so you are chosen uh you win the raffle because it's n number 77 is the, you know, quote winning number and the curtain on the stage pulls back and a couple it reveals this couple that's an interracial couple. I saw this image in your paper. Yeah, I, I put the image in the paper and there's these blackface uh images sort of surrounding them and the announcer um tells you, you know, you you number 77, you won. It's, you know, what are you going to do? And the idea is you're 
the the crowd is there to stone this couple with the okay. baseballs. Um, very very Shirley Jackson of of Levine there. And you're given um, you're given a choice. You can either um, throw the baseball at the couple. You can throw the baseball at the announcer, or if you don't make a choice within the time frame allotted to you, you can just not choose okay. anything at all. But it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. Um, hmm. It doesn't really matter what you choose, because you're not going to get to throw the baseball. One of the the a guard will grab your hand and see that you are sees the the brand on the back of your hand, which marks you as the false shepherd. And then combat begins, and blah 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 blah. Like it, it simply huh. doesn't. It doesn't matter what you do. Right. In this you're sequence. never going to be able to. And so this. Right. Yeah, so the sequence I think is in, in microcosm what the game is dealing with, which is to say, the way in which Booker his life is predetermined for him. Um, he's going to pick number seventy-seven um, because there's no other option, right? It's what's going right. to happen. And I suppose you have a a choice as to how you're going to throw the baseball, but you don't actually get to do it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what you do, one way or the other. So that you have choices, but not really, which is, I think, liberalism. Yeah, choices, but not really. That's good. Right. Uh, there is no alternative, in mm. other words. Um, and I think that that's what Bioshock Infinite is in many ways uh, about. Hmm. In which case, actually, a game that I think has been rightly sort of chastised for its um, its inability to escape from its own liberalism Um it's actually kind of a wonderful little document of, of the current moment of liberalism too. Right. Uh, Cause I, I, I think almost certainly unintentionally, um, you know, uh, I don't think that Ken Levine is attempting to stage this paradox of liberalism. In fact, he even um, in an interview, he was even asked about the representation of Daisy Fitzroy. And the interviewer was like, well, to put this in, you know, 2016 uh, terms, it would be like um, if uh, Donald Trump founded some uh, you know, xenophobic colony only to discover that the Mexicans really are racists. Mm-hmm. Right. And what Ken Levine – Ken Levine's response was something along the lines of, well, uh, oppression turns people into oppressors. And that's, response. you know, the, 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 not the greatest response, right? So, again, I don't I, – I think – and I don't know Ken Levine personally, but I think based on his – the way he has discussed the game in interviews, um, it seems like he is really committed to this sort of middle way liberalism that avoids uh, extremism. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the way that the player is able to arrive at that position um, – through the ritual of ideological recognition that is Bioshock Infinite, is through the authoritarianism that the game itself imposes upon its own structure. So that liberalism then appears, I think, unintentionally to what Ken Levine is probably trying to do, as authoritarian. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that, that seems like as good a place to stop as any. I, you know, of course, could talk to you about this for hours, but... Um, that's great. I like it a lot. Um, 
anything we didn't touch on in the article? Anything you really wanted to get to that we we have uh, passed up? I, I I'm very taken by this analysis because it it is definitely the kind of analysis I like to do where I look at something that I know is politically not perfect and still kind of get something out of it. Um, something out of how get something out of it that like produces a, at least like a representation or a um, compelling vision of, uh, of some complex idea. Um, so I love it. I, 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 I am a big fan of the article and I'm a big fan of, I'm a bigger fan of your explanation of the article. Um, anything that you think we didn't touch on anything you want people to know about or think about before we uh, head out? You know, I, I think we hit on uh, all of the major points. Um, great. Yeah. I, this is a great discussion. Thank you for having That's a scholar's me. dream right there. That's uh you're never going to get a talk where you're going to get that much because someone's going to stand up in the audience and ask a, a 20 minute question and, uh, and you'll never get to the actual interesting questions. So, right. You go to the, these conferences and it's always, you know, did you consider this Oh yeah, minor thing that I'm aware of that you probably haven't heard? Yeah. The lucky thing for you is I'm such a failed scholar that I can't one up you. Um, I, I'm not interested in one upping you. So it's, it's, uh, we get, I just, I'll just talk to you instead of trying to prove that I am somehow more dominant than you because I've read a second book, um, that I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah, this, this was, uh, uh, this is a, a productive conversation. Uh, I, I appreciate I'm glad. Your, your Very productive for me too. Yeah. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, no. Thank you for being on. Um, everyone go follow Ben at Benicus Rex. I think it's underscore yes, Rex. Yes, Benicus um, underscore Rex. And, uh, and yeah, I, uh, I, if, if he'll have, if he'll let me, I will link the paper. If not. Yeah, please, uh, please do. Please link it. Yeah. Okay. I'll link the paper in the show notes and, um, yeah, please come on again anytime. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'd love to be on again. Excellent. All right. Talk soon. All right. Bye.